As you're seated, if you'll take your Bible and uh, turn with me to uh, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We're going to land there and uh, in a few minutes we're going to jump around to a number of different passages. But Romans chapter 1 will be the first one that we uh, really land on. Uh, We are in the uh, final, I believe the final week of, uh, or in the last couple weeks of this series that we've called, now that's a good question. It's a series where we've taken a look at some questions of life and faith and spirituality and religion and tried to understand and dissect those questions and come up with good answers for us as we live in this world, as we live in our culture and our society, and as we're faced ourselves with some of the questions that that are out there. We've looked at at things of of faith and of eternity, and today we're going to look at a question at an issue that is rampant in our culture. We're going to look at the idea of homosexuality and how should we as a church respond to homosexuality. There are a number of different rabbit trails that we could go down and if we had a few more weeks, we could really unpack this in a different way. But there's a lot of information that we could share. It's a good question to ask. It's a controversial issue in our culture. And at times it's a violently controversial issue. But what I want to try to do today is I want to be clear. I want to be crystal clear with what God has to say about this subject and with how we should respond. I believe there's absolutely no question as we read the scriptures and as we walk through it, what God's point of view is on homosexuality. What he says how he addresses it. I think the bigger question for us today to answer is how do we as a church, the church universal, Christ's church, the kingdom, how do we in the kingdom respond and react to the homosexual lifestyle? A number of years ago, a friend of mine, uh, he and I were working on a, on a conference and we were, uh, we had gone into the city, we had gone into Columbus, Ohio, um, a number of a few days ahead of when the conference was actually going to start uh, to do preliminary work. And uh, the, we woke up on a Sunday morning and uh, went to eat. It was either brunch or lunch uh, before we had to be back at the convention center for our for our responsibilities. So we ate lunch, had a good time hanging out. I've known him for a while. A uh, good friend of mine. And um, we, we leave the restaurant. And as we're walking out of the restaurant, we, uh, we go back to the convention center down this certain street and we notice there's a parade, right? Hey, who doesn't love a parade, right? 76 trombones were out there. That, that's a musical. Anyway, um, it was a good parade. And we thought, you know, let's, let's see what's going on in the parade. And we walk up there, two guys, you know, two pastors walking up, checking out the parade. And we noticed as we got closer that it just wasn't a general parade. It was a specific parade. It was the gay pride parade for that day in Columbus. So my friend Ted and I made sure that as we walked through the crowd that day, he was over there and I was over here. Just making it clear. We're just, you know, we were just coming from lunch, didn't know what was going on. We're just walking down back to the convention center. And in the parade, it, it, it was what you would, if you've ever come across one, it is what it is. And if you've ever heard about them, it was what it was. It was what you would have expected. 
down to the T of where along the street, I don't know if they were Christian, I'll use the word religious, were religious people holding their sign. God hates you. God hates you. I was more intrigued with the people holding the sign than the people that were in the parade. I would have rather stopped and had a conversation with the people that were holding the sign than those who were in the parade. What have we as the church done to the gay community? What message are we sending them? What information are they processing when all they hear and all they see when they think about the church are words of hate, are words of venom, are signs that say God hates you? The question we should be answering isn't based on any confusion of God's message. God's message on sexuality is clear in the Scriptures, and we're going to unpack that in a minute. The question we need to answer is how should the church respond to this issue of homosexuality? You see, for many of us, the the image that comes to mind when we think of it is just that kind of image. Is a image of the church historically over the years categorically as a unit holding a sign saying God hates you sending words of venom spilling words of hate into this world for many what comes to mind when we talk about homosexuality in the church is hate violence and shed blood when this is the image of the church's response in the name of God, what inevitably happens is that God's message gets lost. This precious gospel message that we have to share is lost. If the perspective of society is one of hate, then God's message is completely lost in that. If we're going to reclaim the message, we need to change perspectives. And if we're going to change perspectives, we must change our behavior as the church. To reclaim this precious gospel message that we have to share and deposit into the lives of other people. If we're going to reclaim that message then we need to change the perspective of people in our society. And the only way that we will change their perspective of how the church responds and reacts is if we as the church change our behavior. But to put this in perspective, let's, let's go back at the beginning. Let's go way back. All the way back to Genesis. And let's start there. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. You see, if we're going to have a conversation with those in the gay community, if we're going to have a true response, if we're going to reclaim the gospel message, then we need to begin with a worldview that begins with God. There's nowhere else to start for us as the church. If we try to launch into this from anywhere else, we're going to die on the vine. 
We need to start with a worldview that begins with God. God as the creator. God as the creator of all things. God as the creator of the universe, the heavens and the earth. The God of this world created us. It all starts with Him. It all goes back to that beginning. God. God created the heavens. He created the earth and He was pleased. But God is not only a creator God. God is a relational God. And so God created Adam that God would live so that that he would have a relationship with someone else. And so God created Adam. And they walked and they journeyed together. And in this relationship, God understood that Adam needed somebody else on earth that was suitable for him as a helpmate. And so at that point, God created Adam. Eve. Out of Adam came Eve. God created woman to be the suitable, and I use that word specifically, it's in Genesis, the suitable helpmate of Adam. Adam and Eve together for eternity was God's design. Together in a covenant relationship was God's design. You see, there was both a vertical relationship between man and God that was supposed to go on for eternity. And as God created mankind, there was also now a horizontal dynamic between the two people that in God's perfect design was to extend for eternity. This is the world God created. God, the Creator, created this world and also designed humanity. And he designed humanity in a way so that they would be relational people. They would get along with each other. They would be suitable for each other. God created us to be relational beings, but he also created us to be sexual beings. God created us to be sexual for both procreation and pleasure. This was God's natural design. This is how God designed and created man and woman. And so the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, lived in this this natural state, an eternal relationship with God, a a horizontal eternal relationship with each other that was both both, uh, companionship and suitability, but that was also sexual. This was God's design for us. And then one day, and who knows when that day was, one day, the enemy of God, Satan, came and tempted Eve, and Eve sinned. She ate, and Adam ate the apple. I don't know if it was that apple. If you're a PC guy, maybe it is that apple that brought sin into the world, but it's the next apple. Mankind sinned, and when we sinned, it changed everything. It absolutely changed everything. In that moment, all of creation changed. When sin entered the world and entered the scene, it corrupted absolutely everything. God's holiness in humanity was now replaced by sin's corruption. The eternal relationship with God. That relationship that was between man and God that was supposed to go on for eternity was now severed. Humanity would now no longer have an eternal relationship with God unless there was a sacrifice, unless there was a payment for sin. Death entered the world. 
Death entered the world and everything became broken. You see, when sin came, it not only severed that relationship between us and God, it severed every kind of relationship created. Everything was broken at that point. We understand that ecologically. If we, if we would stop and think about this and, and read Genesis, we understand, we understand this ecologically. Our world is broken. There are earthquakes and there are floods and there are tornadoes and there is devastation in this world because our world is broken. Those of you that were in the garden yesterday weeding, weeding your garden, do you know why you were weeding your garden? Because of sin. Adam and Eve. I'm out there weed whacking yesterday and getting scratched and scraped up and I'm thinking, stupid Adam, why'd you have to eat? Right? Because that's the world, that's the world that we now live in. That is our reality now. Our reality now is that we live in a broken world. We understand that ecologically. We understand that biologically. Our bodies are broken. Sin and has caused sickness and cancer and pain and death. See, none of that was God's design. God's design originally when He created was not for that to be so. But when sin entered the world, it broke and it destroyed everything. It destroyed everything ecologically. It destroyed everything biologically. It destroyed everything relationally. Our relationships now, one with another, were broken. There was now shame. They became and we became, and we, be, we were born into liars. We are liars. We are hate-filled people. Humanity became self-serving and greedy. We became gossips. We became murderers and slanderers. Our relationships, one with each other, are broken. The other thing that happened when sin corrupted everything is that truth became twisted. We believe the lies that we're told. We believe the lies that are out there in our culture that we speak to each other. The truth of God is now twisted. And the power of the lie is not that it is entirely untrue. The power of the lie is that the truth that is inside of it is twisted and corrupted. And that's what we believe. And that's what we hold on to. And that's what we live with. We believe the lie. This was and is for us our new reality. Into this world and into this new social order. This is what we've been born into. The irony is this. That this new reality, it's natural for us. It is so natural for us to want to live this way. But the irony is that God never intended us to live this way. It's very unnatural to Him. For us who were born into this natural state, in our eyes, to lie, hey, we all are tempted to lie and we all have a bend to lying. I mean, what's, what's one little white lie, right? Just got to get me through this situation. Just have to get me through this moment. Is it natural? Is it natural to want to lie? In our eyes, yes. In God's design, no. 
While some will be tempted to murder, murder is quite unnatural in God's design. While some will be tempted to spew hate-filled words and to speak with, with anger and venom, to, to do so is quite unnatural in God's design. And while some will be tempted to explore sexual orientation, it's unnatural in God's design. The theology of this is quite simple. We were created to be relational. We were created to be sexual. And where those two relationships converge, in holiness, in purity, and in God's truth, is one man and one woman living in a committed relationship, a covenant of marriage for life. That's God's design. One man, one woman, inside the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. That's God's holy picture of a relationship. That's God's holy design for humanity, both in relationship and in sexuality. And so this issue of homosexuality is not a, is not a new issue. It's not a new debate. It's, it's been going on for thousands of years. Yet because of our corrupted tendencies, because the truth is twisted, Our society complicates it. Our society makes this issue hard. You see, our society, just they just want it to be okay. The society wants us to look at homosexuality and say, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Society wants us to say, it's true. They want it to be about biology. They want it to be natural. And so those are the arguments. The arguments become one of rights and one of biology and one of love. And while we don't have time to go too far into this this morning, I would just say this. Biologically, it's untrue. What's interesting, if you do the work and you begin to drill down on the data and the research, is that the research that was used to defend the homosexual agenda and say that it was biological, the data, there's, there's more scientific study being done that goes back and takes that data and refutes it because it was skewed data. It wasn't even true. It wasn't even accurate. The testing and the the. the Parameters were inappropriate. They were wrong. It was skewed information to get the answer that they wanted to get. So biologically, we know that it's just not true. So the other thing is, it's my right. It's my right because it's natural. Is it natural to desire companionship and relationships? Yes. Is it natural to desire companionships and relationships with people of the same sex? Yes. Is it natural to have sexual desires and urges? Yes. Is it natural in God's design to combine our desire for relationship and sexual behavior outside of marriage? No. Because in God's design, it was always meant for one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage for a lifetime. And we know this to be true in our hearts. We know this to be true in our spirit. We know this to be true in our relationships, in the relationships we have 
with other people. Is it, is it fine to be able to claim, hey, God created me as a relational being. I just need to start hooking up with people all over there because I'm also sexual. Is it okay to have that kind of relationship? And God says no. And we know that's true. You know how I know that's true? Ask the wife who just found out she was cheated on by her husband. Because logically, we should be able to say, if that's true, logically, we should be able to say, well, what's the big deal? We're relational people. We're sexual people. Just, you know, hook up with whoever you want. Ask the wife who just got cheated on. She'll tell you. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Ask the children who are living in homes of divorce because of infidelity. It's not true. That's not the way God designed it. Consider the the staggering statistics on sexually transmitted diseases. So we're supposed to believe that that just because we're relational and just because we're sexual, we can be out there hooking up with whoever we want? Outside of marriage? Outside the bonds of marriage? Absolutely not. And we know it. If we would stop for a moment and use our intelligence, we would know it. This isn't right. This isn't God's design. One man, one woman, inside the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. You see, the power of the lie is not that it's completely untrue. The power of the lie is that the truth that is there is twisted and corrupted. Are we relational people? Yes. Are we sexual people? Yes. Then it's natural. It should be right for me to do that. The truth is twisted. No. God has a specific plan. Is it natural in God's design to combine the desire for relationship and sexual behavior with someone of the same sex? No. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, Paul says this. It's in the middle of the context of a broader discussion. And Paul writes, Even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. You see the words there? The natural. They exchanged the natural for the unnatural. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. They abandoned the natural relations. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The power of the lie is that it's not utterly untrue. But that the truth that is there is twisted and corrupted. Here's the other objection to God's natural design. We should have the right to love. I should have the right to love anybody I want to love. I should have the right to be, to be able to love whoever I want. And you know what God says? God says, you are absolutely correct. Love everybody. Love everybody you come in contact with. Love everyone. In fact, he went as far as to say, in fact, by your love with each other, Will people know that you're my disciples? See, because God talks about three different kinds of love in in the scriptures. 
he talks about phileo love, which is that kind of brotherly, warm affection for another person. There's this, there's, you know, we're just, there's this, there's this connection. There's this chemistry. We click together. It's brotherly kind of love. It's like that friend that you've met that, that it's like a brother or a sister to you. Or it's like that friend that even when you've been away for 10 years, you get back together with them and you're just clicking right along. It's that phileo love. In fact, the city of Philadelphia is named after that phileo, uh, brother, the city of brotherly love. That's, that's one idea of love in the scripture. So God says, you want to love people? Go at it. Phileo love everybody you come in touch with. There's another kind of love. It's called agape love. And that's a little more uh, deeper. That's a little more committed. That's, that, that's a love between two people that goes to a different level. And it's, it's an unconditional love. Now I have a friend or, or uh, uh, somebody else in my life that, that I love in a way that it's unconditional. This person can say whatever they want to say to me. They can yell and scream at me. And they can get angry in their moments of anger. And you know what? I'm going to still love that person. My love for them is unconditional. It's agape love. And God says, you know what? Go agape love everybody. It's a third kind of love in the scriptures and it's called eros love. It's where we get the word erotic and it's intended for sexuality. This is sexual love. This is romantic love. This is intimate love. And God says, you want to love people with eros? Fine. Here's how you do it. One man, one woman in the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. That's Eros love. This whole idea of we should just love people and love everybody, absolutely. You have the right to love. Phileo, agape, whoever you want, whoever you come in contact with. Eros is reserved. One man, one woman in the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. This is God's design for our Relationships. This is God's design for when relationships and sexuality converge. It's holy. It's natural. And this is God's message. But historically and, and categorically, the church makes, the, makes understanding this message complicated. We've complicated this when it comes to the gay community and the homosexual agenda. We've complicated this because of our own stupidity and the way that we act towards people and the way that we scream hate-filled words and we hold signs of anger that says God hates you. The church has lost its footing. The church has lost any kind of potential it has to share the gospel, this precious gospel truth with people because we've acted stupidly. I don't know if it's because we think we need to defend God's righteousness and holiness, or I don't know if it's because we think we are God's gift to defending truth, and I don't know if it comes from disgust or fear, but historically and categorically, the church has sure responded in a way that builds walls instead of building bridges. For many, the perception of the church stems from a response of hate, and anger and rage. When the church holds signs and casts insults and spews slurs, do we wonder why the gay community looks at the church with contempt? 
Do we really wonder why the message of Christ is lost? Do we wonder why we can't even have a conversation without it becoming violent? Society's perspective is that the church hates homosexuals. Not merely the practice, but the perspective is that we, the church, in God's name, hate them as people. So the message is lost. This gospel truth that is precious, that can reach in and change and transform lives, is lost. Because we hate. Because we say words of anger and bitterness. And the irony is this. We are just as broken as they are. We are just as broken as they are. We are just as lost. We are just as helpless. And we know that by looking at our own actions. Our own actions tell us that. There's nothing moral. There's nothing right. There's nothing holy about this kind of behavior. It's repulsive. It's degrading. It's foul and it's ugly. Imagine for a moment entering into a conversation with somebody that you don't even really know or maybe just met. And because and in the course of that conversation, they learn one aspect about you. And in the middle of that, you just they just launch into you with hate and anger and venom. And then at the end of that conversation, they say, hey, would you like to come over to my house for dinner? What would you think? Any takers? Isn't that what we do as the church? When we respond in that way? Are we not, at, at, at the core, at the core, are we not trying in some manner, evangelistically speaking, are we not trying to invite them to the great banquet in eternity in heaven? Aren't we trying to do that? But yet, and we do it in a manner that just makes this, makes the situation and the people look at us and go, are you serious? You're going to treat me this way. You're going to act this way. And then you're going to invite me to your home for dinner? We're just as broken as they are. We're just as fallen. My, uh, my friend has entered the gay lifestyle. She, uh, she was one of my... She was one of my students in my youth group, in one of the churches that we served. And um, she's bright, smart kid, funny, hysterical to be around. My wife and I, we love her to death. She came over to our house. She became part of uh, you know, our family with, with, uh, with our kids at times. And we, we loved her and she loved us and we loved her family. And, 
And we watched as she graduated. We watched as she went off to college and went um, out of college, went to the West Coast and um, um, through Facebook, we were able to just kind of keep in touch. And, and over time, we, we saw the subtle changes that were happening. And then over time, the, the, the not-so-subtle changes as, as it became apparent that she is now in this gay lifestyle. And we'd still write back and forth on Facebook. We'd still communicate. Hey, how you doing? What are you up to now? Back and forth. A couple years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, uh, perform her brother's wedding. Her, her brother was getting married and invited me to come back and do the wedding. And so we went down and, and we knew, we knew from the, the, the situation that, uh, first of all, there was a question whether she would even be invited to the wedding. There was a question of, of how she would be would she even be in the wedding then? Um, would she even show up? Would she even come? And it was it was thick, thick with tension, leading up to that wedding. And and we got there, and she was there, and um, it was so great to just touch base with her and just uh, catch up with what's going on. And and so we we go to the reception, right? We go to the reception, and you know how at a number of wedding receptions. Um, that the seating at the reception is is reserved. And so, you know, you go pick up your number, I'm sitting over here. And because of that, because of that, it's really kind of inappropriate until a certain point. It's really kind of inappropriate to get your table setting and go sit somewhere else, right? So you just kind of sit where you're at. And what we noticed is that there comes a time when, you know, things begin to happen, like dancing, and um, which is okay. That's great. Um that, uh, you know, everybody kind of loosens up and now you can go sit and mingle. And we looked. And nobody was sitting with her. And this was a room where I looked around and these were all her youth, youth leaders from when she grew up in the church. And all the kids, college and high school friends that she had, that she grew up with and nobody was sitting with her. So my wife and I decided we're going to go sit with her because the time was right. I was, I was itching to go over and talk to her, but, you know, because of the reserved seating. So we did. When it was appropriate, we got up and we went over. And I hugged her. I told her I loved her. And we sat and we talked for a couple hours, just what's going on, how's Starbucks going, you know. In fact, it was funny because when I knew she was working at Starbucks every now and then, I'd be in the mall and I'd, I'd just send her a text, hey, I'm getting a latte. I don't even know what that means, but I would <laughs> send her a text and, and we just talked. Got my picture taken with her to remember the night and to remember the moment. We just loved her. She knows our belief, obviously. She knows where we stand on the issue. But we love her. I knew she was going to be at the wedding. And I didn't bring a sign. 
And I didn't spew words of hate and anger. I didn't use that opportunity to drill down on her and tell her, you know, what you're doing is evil. And I, I, I just loved her. Because as with all my students that have gone through my youth ministry, she's my kid. And I just loved her. Nothing will show the message of the gospel, this precious message that we have that can transform lives. Nothing will show the message of the gospel like love. For God so loved the world that he gave his son to pay the penalty for our sin and to restore that broken relationship with him. So that whoever believes in Him, His death, His resurrection, His divinity would not perish, but would have eternal life. Here is where eternity with God is restored. In that picture where eternity was broken, the cross, this is where that eternity is restored. I can now have an eternal relationship with God. Because of what Christ did, the precious message of that gospel restores that relationship. And it not only restores the vertical relationship, the message of the gospel restores the horizontal relationship. And so where I've hurt somebody because of my lies and my anger and my bitterness and the rage and the abuse, that can be restored. That can be restored between each other, person to person. And where sexuality is broken, it can be restored by the power of the gospel that transforms lives. This is our redeemed reality. Look at the next verse, John 3.17. Do me a favor, every time you quote 3.16, will you quote 3.17? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Even Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. The world stands condemned already. My job, my role as a Christ follower is not to condemns, condemn people's eternity. My job is to show them the transformational, the transformational power of the gospel message. My job is just to testify, to witness. Yes, this is true. It does happen. God does change lives. Jesus said that the greatest commandment has two parts to it. He said that the greatest commandment, part one, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it. It's like the, it's like the other side of a coin. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people. Love God and love people. 
If I can love God in the appropriate way, if I am loving God and learning what it means to love a holy and right and true and pure God, then I will in turn love other people in a way that is natural to God. Not natural to me, but natural to God. I can love other people. Regardless of their faults, regardless of their sin, my job is to love God and to love people. That is what He's asked the church to do. We as the church need to learn how to stand on our beliefs. And I don't want anybody walking out of this message today and being unclear. God is crystal clear that the human relationship, sexual relationship, is reserved for one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. That is God's design. We need to learn how to stand for our beliefs in God's truth in a way that invites people invites them to explore faith, invites them to trust God for themselves and for their own eternity. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a conference for the Christian and Missionary Alliance and the keynote speaker was Ravi Zacharias. He is perhaps uh, this generation's best uh, evangelist and apologist. And um, he, spe- he goes around to, uh, and, and speaks on college campuses about faith and, and truth and Christianity, defending the biblical value and God world, the Christian worldview. He goes to a number of different um, campuses and colleges and universities, and, and he says they're packed out. He, and and, and I'm, talking about, I'm talking about places like Yale and Princeton and Oxford and Penn State. These are where he goes. Notice how I put Penn State in with this. Um, but he did. He does. He goes to Penn State. And what he said was this. He said, when I go, I'm amazed that the room is packed to overflowing with a generation of students who want answers. They have questions, difficult questions, but they're looking for answers. The room is packed. In another speech that he gave, in another night, I was challenged with, with what I took as an indictment on the church when Ravi Zacharias said, more people are willing to listen than are willing to share. More people are willing to listen than are willing to share. What does that say about the church? We've closed our mouth. We've gone quiet on issues of faith and spirituality. We've gone quiet on the hard questions. There are more people who are willing to listen that are willing to share. There are packed universities. We have a message. And we have an opportunity. And we have a mandate to take this precious gospel message and deposit it into the lives of other people and watch their life 
be transformed. Love is the answer. Speaking truth in love is the key. My wife and I, we will love our friend forever. We may not approve of what she does or how she lives her life. She knows our belief and she knows our stance. What will change her heart? The power of God working in her changes her heart. And I can choose, I can choose to be a part of that or I can choose to hinder that. And I choose to be a part of that. I choose that because I remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 through 10, where he says this, Surely you know that the people who do wrong will not inherit God's kingdom. Do not be fooled. Those who sexually sin, worship idols, take part in adultery. Those who are male prostitutes or men who have sexual relations with other men. Those who steal. See, now, see, we thought it was all about, you know, the sexual thing, right? For all of you that thought it was just that, buckle up, because here he goes. Those who steal, those who are greedy, those who get drunk, those who lie about others, those who rob. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse, in verse 11, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. That is what some of you were. That was the life you used to live. That is the life you used to be a part of. But the power of the gospel message transforms your life. And you are now washed. And you are now justified. And now you are sanctified. And the relationship, the vertical relationship with God is restored for now into eternity for those who will accept Christ's gift. And the relationship between one another, this horizontal relationship, is redeemed and restored and can be made new because you are washed because you are justified because that's what you were not who you are I have hope for my friend not because of anything I can say, but because of the power of the gospel message to transform her life. There's still time. There's still hope. There's hope for all of us. We're no different than the gay community. Our vice and our sins are just different. We're broken. A broken people who needs a redeemer and a restorer. God loves us and reaches out to us. And if we will let him, he will make us holy and right and clean. So that we can say with assurance, that's what some of us were. But I was washed. This is the hope of the church. This is the message we hold on to. That out of our brokenness, God washes and cleanses and restores. 
as the church historically and categorically has made a mess of this message of hope to the gay community, we can redeem that message. We can. Today, in our communities, we can redeem that message. Love God and love people. Love God as He should be loved and be faithful and obedient to what He teaches and love people out of that love for God. And when the opportunity arises, speak the truth and speak it in love. Imagine the church not spewing hate, but building relationships that instill dignity, love, and value in the other person. Imagine showing people, in fact, imagine loving people from brokenness to beauty as God naturally intended it. Our God is stronger. Our God is power. Our God is healer. Let's trust Him with this message. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your words. And I pray that as we leave today, You, Holy Spirit, would challenge us. For some of us, this is theory. For some of us, we don't live in this world where the gay community is is in front of us. But help us to be prepared and help us to um, pray for our church, Christ's church, that we would be a bride who is loving and gentle while we speak truth. For others of us, we deal with this on an everyday basis, whether it's at work or or in our family situation. And we pray, God, that, again, we would, we would understand and walk this tension between love and truth. And that we would be people who would look to restore and redeem relationships. Help us this week in what we encounter. Help us to go into the world in peace and have courage to hold on to what is good and honor all men, to strengthen the faint-hearted and support the weak. Help us to help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. It's in His name we pray. Amen.